everybody, welcome to episode 16 of Literary Disco, the Pillars of the Earth episode. This week, we'll begin with a bookshelf revisit in which Todd, Julia, and I take something down from our bookshelves to discuss, and then we will dive into the minefield that is Ken Follett's Pillars of the Earth. We will talk about not only the novel, but the audiobook and the miniseries adaptation, and why I may no longer be on speaking terms with my brother after this episode. <laughs> I'm actor and filmmaker Ryder Strong. Joining me as always, our SAS and radio personality Julia Pistel and novelist and critic Todd Goldberg. Welcome, guys. Hello. Hello. All right, so um, I'll start off the bookshelf revisit. I found something on my bookshelf today that um, I'm going to reread. I haven't actually reread it yet, but I love this little book. Um, it's called Minds, Brains, and Science by John Searle. And the backstory for me with this book is that um, I am terrible at math and, like, avoided science throughout high school, avoided math, you know, did, oh my god, I'm like, I was so, I chose my college primarily based on the fact that they did not have a math requirement. Wow. (laughs) That's why the communists are going to win. I hope you're happy. Yeah. I was actually having this discussion with my brother earlier today. He was like, well, you were into other things. And I, that's true. But I really wish that in high school somebody had pushed me to to focus on, on math a little bit more. Anyway, I came to science very late. Now I'm like a total science geek. Not, not that I'm any like, not that I'm very knowledgeable or actually know what I'm talking about. But I love the idea of science. I love um, reading about popular science and stuff like that. And part of it is because while I was in college, even though they didn't have a math requirement, they had a science requirement. And so as I decided to take a behavioral neuroscience class, and it was one of the best classes I took while I was in college. And this was part of the required reading, and it's not a neuroscience textbook by any means. It's actually a very fun book. I just had a really cool professor who wanted us to not only study neuroscience and, you know, get a sort of introduction to um, the subject, but also to think about it in broader terms and more sort of philosophical terms. And this little book, which is only 100 pages long, really approaches all of those issues in such a concise, fun, easy-to-read format. Things like the mind-body problem, the question of free will, these huge philosophical uh, questions are boiled down into fun, concise chapters. Uh, I can't recommend it higher. I, I, I recommend this book to anybody that's sort of like an armchair philosopher, you know, like mm. who's ever like sat back and had those moments of, you know, if a computer could be as intricate as a human brain, would that make it conscious? You know, questions like that. Or evil. Would it make it evil? That's my concern. So l- let me ask you an important question. Do you understand math now? Hmm. No, I I avoided math completely. I mean, I <laughs> I have no understanding. I have no understanding of math at all. Um, I think there's a major problem with the mantra of I'm bad at math. Yes. I like I've heard so many people say it now, especially you know when talking. You know, I can't make an Excel spreadsheet. I'm bad at math. I can't figure out this check. I'm bad at math. And I just I feel like that is so deeply reinforcing a fear of math that it's just a chronic problem i don't think i mean i believe that math was hard and conceptual for you but sorry hard conceptually for you but i i don't i cannot believe that the number of people who are inherently 
seriously horrible at math matches the number of people that say they are. But it's something that happens at a young age, I think. It, you mm-hmm. know, it's the way our education system works, and especially, it's it's this idea that that if you're I think probably for Todd and I both, like, we were good at other things, like reading mm-hmm. and writing. And so if you're good at something, it's like, keep doing that. And they, like, push you to excel. And they say, you're probably not a math and science type of person. And that, I hate that. I think that that's the worst way to approach education because I totally bought into that. You, you know you know what happened to me? <laughs> so here's a brief story. So I cheated my way through math for the first three years of high school. Oh, Jesus. Um, so that by my senior year in Dad. high school, I had cheated my way into math analysis, which is a class I was uniquely unsuited for. I probably should have been in Algebra 2 for the fourth time. <laughs> so it was my senior year in high school, and the person I normally cheated off um, was not in that class. And all the people in math analysis were super smart and didn't want me to they get them flunked out of cheaters. high school. Yeah. And so I was, was such a disruption in class that you know it was really a problem because I would just, you know tell jokes and talk shit and cheat and whatnot. And so one day coming back to school, my math class was uh, right after lunch and I'm walking up to the math class and the teacher is standing out in front of the class waiting for me. And I'm thinking, Oh God, this is, this is not good. And this is, this was the middle of my senior year. And he says, Todd, I need to have a conversation with you about this class. And I said, okay. And he said, you are such a disruption in class that if you continue to attend the class, I'm going to fail you. But if you continue to cut the class, I'll give you a D. Oh, my God. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> I bet every teacher dreams of saying that to a student. I said, what? And he said, look, you're a nice kid. I know you're going to go to college. Um, you're cheating. I know you're cheating. I don't want to hold you up from your career. I don't want to. I don't want to stop you from going to college. But there are people in this class that want to learn. And there's only a couple months left. It's just easier for me all around if you just don't attend. Wow. And I said, so I'll get a D? And he said, yes, you'll get a D. And I said, and, you know, no one's going to find out about this? He's like, if you tell anyone, you get the F. <laughs> and if anyone finds out, I lose my job. So this is a deal we're going to make. And so wow. I said, that sounds perfectly fine to me. <laughs> and so I got a D in math analysis. In retrospect, wow. as an educator now, I, I realize the, the error of the teacher's ways, but I was it was I didn't I just didn't get it in a fundamental way also because I you know I had a, a bit of a learning disability. I I was terribly dyslexic and math was just something I was never able to conceptualize. Yeah. Um I just I, I could never do it. It's sad that science gets lumped in with it because, you know, biology and certain elements of chemistry are so poetic in their construction that you know, it's too bad that a bunch of literary people may be dumping those as well. Well, the interesting thing about what we're talking about is is it dovetails nicely into my bookshelf revisit. And I have to be honest with you guys. I haven't really been reading anything other than one thing for about the last month. And that is the blog The 538 by Nate Silver on the New York Times, which is all about numbers and statistics. That's awesome. Um, if you are not familiar with the 538, it is a blog run by uh, a gentleman named Nate Silver at the New York Times that is constantly updating the calculus of the presidential election, which after you, when you guys hear this, will be one day before the election. Um, oh, man. And it shows the ups and downs of uh, both candidates and senatorial candidates and tells you how to interpret polls and statistics. And I swear to God, it's gotten to the point now where... 
before I go to the bathroom, I check the 538 to figure out if I have to go number one or number two and what the probability is that there'll have the difficulty involved with it. I am absolutely <laughs> obsessed with Nate Silver's 538. It is all I can read. And it's also, if you're a liberal Democrat like myself, and I think I am, can speak for the other two people on the show here, Ryder and Julia as well, um, it's heartening because it it... it is in Obama's favor, and irrespective of what the truth might be come Tuesday, it really makes me feel good on a daily basis to see what percentage of a chance Nate Silver is giving the president to be reelected. But it's also fascinating. Anxiety-inducing. It yeah. is. It is extraordinarily anxiety-inducing, but it's also palliative because he writes in such a way, and this is the interesting thing: is he writes in such a way that statistics and the swings in statistical polling. He explains it in, in real layman's terms and makes you understand, you know, where emotion falls in and how different events come into play. When I'm feeling at my worst, I can get on the 538 at midnight, read what he has to say and be like, well, what's the worst that could happen? Oh, a Romney would be elected. That's the worst that could happen. But it, it, it's just a fascinating thing. The, here's the other thing, though, is that you know liberals and 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 conservatives are constantly battling about you know poll numbers and you know which ones are valid which ones aren't and of course you don't want to believe the poll numbers when they don't support whatever your belief is you they're skewed in some way but the thing about the 538 is that you can't skew statistics you know you can't mm-hmm. skew the kind of statistical polling that he does so when obama was down we felt it you know we were aware of it when it was happening and then the numbers proved it out and when obama went back up when we felt a resurgence in um, his message or what have you the numbers and the polling went up too so it's this real emotional roller coaster that he charts and he also has gone back and charted you know everything from the last eight thousand years um to for comparison purposes it's just absolutely fascinating i've never been interested in statistics in my life previously but i'm absolutely addicted to the 538 and after the election i don't know what will replace it in my life i'm thinking maybe we'll get another dog or um maybe we'll have a baby (laughs) then you're gonna name nate silver Silver. for the listeners out there the last time obama won uh ryder and i went to the inauguration together and froze our asses off uh on the mall so worth it it was absolutely worth it. It was the coldest I've ever been. We had really great Chinese food afterward, oh. as, as Americans are wont to do. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay, well, speaking of Born in the USA, that is my dovetail. Last week, or actually I guess it was just a few days ago, I decided at the last second to go see Bruce Springsteen down the street from my house. <gasps> oh. Yeah, I know. I know. Well, first oh. of all, let's That was talk the Bruce Springsteen side. <laughs> yeah. Um, so there's a huge stadium, literally a block from my house. So if somebody's in town, sometimes I'll just wander down there and be like, do I want to go to this? Okay. And get some terrible seats. Um, so I'm from New Jersey, everybody. And so going to a Bruce Springsteen concert is literally like church. It's New Jersey church. It's like, oh my God, I haven't been in a while. When did I make my last weepy confession? (laughs) I went with a friend, and we got tickets um, behind this. They were like, oh, we're really sorry. The only thing we have is tickets right behind the stage. So you have to look at Bruce Springsteen's butt the whole time. But it was, like, right right behind the stage. So it was incredibly awesome, obviously, and uh, it was wonderful. But that all reminded me that uh, of, Todd, I know you like this book, too, of Neil Strauss's Everyone Loves You When You're Dead. 
I love that book. It is Absolutely I have no idea book. what this book is. Oh, you're go- Ryder, you're going to lose your mind. Um, okay, so what it is is um, there's this guy, Neil Strauss, and he wrote for Rolling Stone and I think GQ and just a whole bunch of magazines. He's a freelance music writer, um, and he interviewed hundreds of musicians and, you know, the top echelon of musicians and some actors that you all would have heard of, including Bruce Springsteen. And also really minor musicians and stuff, too, which was interesting. Yeah, yeah. so Bruce Springsteen, Britney Spears has a lot of hilarity in there. Um, oh, my God, there's so many good ones. Uh, <laughs> I, I won't go on and on. But what he did was a couple years ago, he took his notes that didn't end up going into any of the articles he wrote, and he just publishes the transcriptions of pieces of these interviews. And they are so funny because they're the weirdest, dumbest things that didn't make it into um, whatever his piece was supposed to be about. And I really recommend, Todd, I'll be curious to see if you agree, um, reading it in order because the desire mm-hmm. to flip to the musician that you love is overwhelming. And that's the first thing I did. But then I read the whole thing in order, and it tells a really strange story about what it means to be an American celebrity in music. It does. And the most bizarre thing, and hopefully you remember this, Juliet, is when he he co-wrote Dave Navarro's biography, which Navarro wrote when he was, you know, strung out on drugs. But there's a point where he's with Dave Navarro, and he has to interview <laughs> Cher for something. Yeah. And Dave Navarro basically says, hey, can I talk to Cher on the phone? And Dave <laughs> Navarro and Cher have a conversation where Dave Navarro is like, hey, I've always respected what you do. And then Cher's asking him advice about her kid who's on drugs. And yeah. Dave Navarro is like, hey, you know, you just you got to find something else for him. It's just this really intimate you know, conversation between two big artists about, you know, what it means to be a celebrity and what it means to be an addict and all these things. And I was like, that's Dave Navarro from Jane's Addiction having a conversation with Cher. That is yeah. just the weirdest fucking thing. Hey, hey, can I talk to Cher for a second? Put her on. <laughs> uh, yeah, but so of I course. went back to yeah. Springsteen's part and it's really short, but they go to, they go drinking in a dive bar Oh, that's right. Yes. Bruce Spring and it's a really serious conversation about Bruce Springsteen going to therapy and when he first started going, he was like, but I'm so rock and roll. But there's this amazing thing that he says, I wish I had in front of me. He's like, You have to hold in your mind at the same time that I want to be a down to earth person, but I have to accept the reality that I'm a rock star and what does that mean for my own mental health? It's so interesting. And it seems like something that Bruce would totally say. So I believe it. The other thing about Neil Strauss is he wrote that book, The Game. Uh, is that what it's called? Where he, mm-hmm. you know, he, he teaches you how to pick up oh, chicks and stuff. God, this guy. <laughs> and then he also wrote the emergency book where it's like, oh, this guy sounds like the biggest jackass. I've never read a single one of his books, but I hate this person already. Yeah, but the interviews are really good. But the thing that makes him the person who wrote the game is the same thing that made him able to get these interviews from people. That same quality of getting people to trust you, to believe you, to go where you want them to go. So douchebag or not, maybe douchebags are j- better interviewers. <laughs> going to put that out there. Want to be a nonfiction writer? Learn to be a good douchebag. If, if you're charming, you make, you make both you and the other person feel pretty great about yourself. <laughs> you know, and, and I think he has that ability. Um, but he is pretty douchey. Um, when that uh, he he has a dating school now based on the game. I mean, the guy's Ugh, turned see, it into that's a gross. That's <laughs> he turned it into a cottage industry. Ugh. 
you know, I barely like Hunter S. Thompson, so I don't really like people that want to be Hunter S. Thompson. So, like, <laughs> anybody that's, like, anybody that's, like, Johnny Depp. You know, it's gonzo journalism. I'm like, ugh, I have no interest in this then. Like, just be a journalist, and if you happen to live some elements of what you're writing, but great, and include that. But, like, the identity of, like, I'm really going to get into my subjects matters head. I'm going to live like my sub. It's like, shut up. Like, I, but that's not I what hate this it is. all. This is no, just a straight that. up interview. Okay. Yeah. So that's all. Yeah. He says something. Bruce Springsteen says something. He says yeah, it's, something. It's Sharon super interesting. Remember that conversation we just had about getting over authors' personalities because we we're that's never right. to know them? That's right. That's a great point, Julia. Yeah, but Thank he markets you. his personality. That's a little That's a great point, writer. <laughs> Oh, it's Agreeable Todd. Agreeable Todd showed up today. This is great. So hopefully Agreeable Todd will be just as agreeable about Pillars of the Earth. I'm sure he will. Which we will discuss in a minute. Stick around. All right, everybody. Welcome back to Literary Disco. Uh, and now the time has finally come for us uh, to discuss the Pillars of the Earth. Oh, God. I don't even like to hear the words. Ken Follett published his novel, The Pillars of the Earth, in 1989. And America and the rest of the world has suffered since. No, Aww. they've actually loved it. Uh, Todd, it's going to be okay. The novel tells the story uh, that begins in 1135 in England and ends in 1174. It's focused... On the construction of a fictional cathedral in Kingsbridge, England. The cast of characters include Tom Builder, the guy who actually becomes the master builder of the cathedral, and his various children. There's the <laughs> villainous William Hamley, who violently overthrows the local earl. Then there's the deposed earl's children. There's Aliena and Richard. There is the monk, Philip, who becomes prior of Kingsbridge. And then basically there's everybody's children and their children's well, children. Well, you, you've forgotten children. Ellen, the, the Wiccan whore. Right. And Jack Jackson. How dare you? They were, they were included with Tom Builder and his family. So uh, Tom Builder is sort of a wandering uh, craftsman looking to build a Let, cathedral. Let's just stop one minute here, Ryder. Okay. Well, can I explain this project first before we go into the details of the plot? Yeah. Well, that, that's what I was going to say. Is what you need to do, Ryder, is you need to I'll, not just... I'll give the whole backstory, Inflict baby. Don't the worry. people with what you've inflicted us. Okay. So, basically, um, the idea behind reading The Pillars of the Earth and Literary Disco, it began because this book became a huge hit in the strong family. <laughs> Uh, right around when it first came out, I guess, because my brother was probably about 11 years old when he first read the book, which would be about 1989. Had he suffered a brain injury? No, he was just 11 years oh, old. So basically, this project came up on Literary Disco because when I was growing up, everyone in my family loved this book. While I was reading Stephen King's The Stand as my like epic big book that I was reading at 11 years old, my brother uh, read... Humble brag. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Well, no, there's a point to that. That one's going to come back. Okay. My brother was reading The Pillars of the Earth, and both my parents read The Pillars of the Earth. They loved it. And then um, my brother and my dad took this epic road trip across country, and they decided, even though both of them had read the book, they decided to listen to the audiobook of Pillars of the Earth. And they loved it. It was like this great bonding trip, and they both loved the audiobook. And 
whatever. So I always grew up knowing that this was this great epic book that I had kind of missed because I had been reading my creepy Stephen King books and, you know, training to become a serial killer, I guess, or whatever. <laughs> and, and so it always kind of bored me. It looked like a big, boring book about cathedrals. Even though I was into D&D and all the sort of fantasy stuff that my brother was into, I just had missed this book. And then it, it became that thing that, oh, Ryder never read The Pillars of the Earth. And especially for my brother, he gave me a lot of crap about judging this book without ever having read it. So we got into our annual argument and I realized this would be a great literary disco read. Absolutely. Why don't we finally take uh, why don't I finally take on uh, Pillars of the Earth with the literary disco team? And then it occurred to me because my brother also loved the audiobook and he loved the miniseries, as oh, did my parents. Jesus. So we decided to split this up three ways. I read the book, Julia listened to it on audiobook, and Todd didn't have to read or listen to it, so he got the oh, easy... Oh, I had to hear yes. it. Oh. It was in my home. He watched the eight episodes of the miniseries that aired on Stars. That was the adaptation. So that's the backstory. I just want to say one thing. Let's okay. lay something down right here. Todd, your experience was how long? Eight hours. And Ryder, how long did it take you to read the book, give or take? Not not that long of actual sitting down and reading, because it reads reads really fast. So maybe... So, no, a couple, a couple of reads, days of solid means, reading. He means skims, skims. let's, let's right, be honest. maybe 15 to 20 hours. Yeah. My audiobook was 41 hours long. Unbelievable. That is unbelievable. 41 hours. That and is And the reason I chose to listen to the 40-hour audiobook was because I was training for a marathon, at the time, and I thought it would make the miles go by faster. Well, it didn't. In fact, I think it actually kept me from running some days. <laughs> so let me let me bring back. I want to bring back the point about the stand. Why why I mentioned the stand? All right. Because my response to my brother once I started reading this book and and finding it a complete abomination of literature, <laughs> I looked at my brother and you know I gave him the out. I said. You know, you, because what had happened is my brother had never read The Stand. And a couple of years ago, I said, you know, you should read The Stand because he loves post-apocalyptic stuff. And he read it and he had some incredibly valid criticisms of it. And he brought them to my attention and I said, you know what? I probably just loved it because I was 12 or whatever. It's probably not that great of a book. You're right. So I tried to bring that up with The Pillars of the Earth. I was like, Maybe you were just 11 when you read this. But no, he insists that he reread it for the fourth time. Oh, Jesus. Only a couple of years ago and Shiloh still thinks that it's a great book. So what is wrong with us, Todd, Julia? Well, let, that let is me, the before, question. Before we get into that, let me just make a, an important statement. Um, I know Ryder's brother, Shiloh. I think he's a great guy. Uh, Mr. and Mrs. Strong, um, if you're listening, Ryder's parents wonderful, wonderful people. Um, wish they were my own parents. Uh, they have been nothing but supportive and kind to me and to Julia and to our families. And I can only assume that there was a time period in the 1980s wherein they lost their minds. <laughs> <laughs> and Ryder was out of town that day. All right, Todd, wait a minute, though, because part of the reason we're doing this podcast is we are seriously in the minority. Most people love this book. America loves this book. The world loves this book. It, it, it's time to, to look at yourselves and see if maybe there's something wrong. Because this book, <laughs> this miniseries, the whole idea of it is absolutely fucking 
terrible. I wanted to ground my own testicles into a fine, powdery-like substance and then toss them into the wind. But I'm so curious how the, how the miniseries could be a, as sort of shallow as the book, because the things that bothered me about the book were not the subject matter, for instance. Like, the idea of this cathedral-building historical novel is kind of cool. For me, it was really on the level of prose and depth of character. I totally And both agree. of those things, I thought, could be saved by a miniseries, so I'm really curious. The, they, they were boiled down to their least compelling parts. The only thing that was good about it was that he, was Ian McShane. He he was great, but he plays um, yeah, the... He plays, he plays Severus Snape. Yeah, he, he plays <laughs> Snape, but he's so... Lurking around. He he's clearly loves the role because he's just so evil. But it's also such a on-the-nose character and on-the-nose writing. Everything is so yes, obvious totally. that there's absolutely no dimension to him whatsoever. And if if you're a fan of, like, Deadwood, where he plays, played, you know, an evil guy who had a lot of dimension, seeing him in this role, you just think, oh, I'd rather just be watching any episode of Deadwood where, you know, he was evil, but at least he was a rounded evil. Oh, it was absolutely. Just, uh, the best part was when he got pissed on. But we'll get to that in a minute. Well, should we take a step back and actually try and describe the plot? Yes, a not, bit? I think we can go back and describe the okay. horrific yes. experience it is in Pillars of the Earth. So the story of Pillars of the Earth is really it begins with this this man named Tom Builder and his family, and um, they're starving in the countryside, and he is a builder, as his name implies, uh, <laughs> and he goes around. Fine. He wants to build cathedrals. He'd worked in other cathedrals, and he can't find a job. And because um, of Obama. This is, this isn't given too much away, but he his wife dies. <gasps> she dies in childbirth, and um, because of Obama. Oh Jesus! <laughs> Am I going to get anywhere this plot? Okay, no. basically, there's a lot of love triangles and family histories, and uh, they're all trying to build this cathedral in this town of Kingsbridge. And the the really frustrating part about this book for me is right there. Right from the beginning, you know who the good guys are. You know who the bad guys are. They never change. No. They never get any yeah. more depth of character. No. Pretty much, if somebody is an asshole, they start off that way, and then it's not long before they're raping people and killing people. <laughs> That's it. And then if you're a good person, you're constantly trying to deal with what the bad people are doing. Yes. The book has a strangely cold quality to it. Yep. It's very logical. And for as much as it tries to be this epic... It actually is a, this weird, um, it's like, okay, we, you know, every chapter begins with everything was going fine, but then, and then there's an evil person, and, dun, yeah, dun, an evil dun. rapist, you know, There is along. a tremendous amount of rape in this. There's more rape in this book than any yes. book we've read since Sweet Valley High. So basically, every chapter begins with one of these rapist invaders <laughs> screwing up the plans to build this cathedral for the good guys. And then the good guys spend the rest of the time trying to argue and discuss obscure uh, religious law and tradition mixed with random medieval country laws. And then they figure it out and a compromise is reached and everything goes back to everything being okay and then we cut to four years later when the same thing happens again yeah right at one point a group of monks sing the bad guys <laughs> away that was one of the seminal moments for me is let's sneak into the quarry and sing to the bad guys so they'll be afraid that 
God will smite them down if they smite us down so we can take these rocks for the cathedral. None of the solutions to the problems ever feel very satisfying. For instance, there's one time when they just decide to, you know, they, they hear that the bad guys, one of the rapists, is going to invade. <laughs> and so they, they're like, well, let's build the wall. You're like, oh, now, now you're going to build the wall? And they're like, we only have oh, 48 hours to build the wall. And they do it. And you're like, hold on a second. If you could have built a wall at any point and you knew that you were living in a place with the rapist Earl who was going to come and invade your place, <laughs> figure that out ahead of time. But it's like they were constantly, every four years, shocked, absolutely shocked that this evil rapist Earl who they allowed to live last time was coming back to what? Rape them and take over their place again? It's like ridiculous. Let, let me ask you an important narrative question in regards to the various rapists and bad guys. This is something they employed in the miniseries. I'm curious if they did it in the book and the audiobook. The way that people find out about bad guys in the miniseries and really find out about anything is that the one person hides behind a corner of a wall and listens into every nefarious plan and then walks across the quarry that's to, clever. That's clever script writing. Right yes, there. It's, and and so powerful. It walks across the quarry and says to Tom Builder, "Tom Builder, the the monks they're <laughs> they're planning they're, they're plotting against uh, us." And then Tom Builder says, "It can't the be." The way that people find out about the rapes in the book is that they get raped. There's so many rapes in this book. There was a point where I actually said aloud to myself, "I I'm pretty sure I only have three hours left." I'm pretty sure this must be the last rape. And I was wrong. <laughs> There's also a lot of like nipple this. grabbing. The nipple grabbing is actually supposed to meant positively, too. There's lots of nipple pinching through clothing. I mean, every love scene and is described as grabbing a nipple and pinching, and she gasps. Yeah. It's like every time. I'm like, okay, every I know time. a little too every much time. about Ken Follett's sex life to be comfortable. And, and... Um, I now know how a stiff nipple feels under every different kind of clothing. A leather tunic. A uh, this was not linen, conveyed in the miniseries. Some wool. Some felted yeah. wool. Um, it is so... Well, you know, Todd, what you were saying about how the how they scripted the adaptation where people are constantly overhearing other people, I'm not surprised because... The way the book is written, it's so interesting. People, there's no such thing as subtext. There's no such thing no. as characters having uh, one motivation but acting or saying another thing. It's like the bad guy is an outspoken bad guy. So mm-hmm. if he if he walks into a room, he's like, "I'm going to rape you and take all your lands." <laughs> it's like just short of wringing his <laughs> that, mustache or wringing that's his hands. Exactly how Ian McShane sounds in it. I'm going to rape you and take your land. It's crazy. It's like, and then, and then the good guys are like, "Look, we're all just trying to be good people here and build a cathedral." And so there's this level of transparency about the characters that, I mean, one of the things that I kept thinking about was Game of Thrones because obviously there's a parallel in that it's a medieval-y world and there's lots of characters. Although this book has, you know, one one hundredth of the characters of Game of Thrones, (laughs) but it also has one one hundredth of the depth because the thing about The thing about Game of Thrones that is so brilliant is that you begin with this idea of the Lannisters as bad people, but by 
page 20, you know that they have their own motivations, they have their own petty grievances that you understand, yeah. that you start to get, you know, drawn into. And by the, you know, by like the third book, you're practically rooting for the Lannisters half the time. And th there's this level of complexity and understanding of, of human understanding of humanity where you see that you know everybody is nuanced and that nobody is one motivation or one thing and even if somebody's incredibly power hungry they're usually power hungry for very rational good reason that nobody thinks of yeah. themselves as a villain and this book could not be worse in terms of reducing its characters to being so upfront with their motivations and petty impulses and not having any layers below it i cannot believe that this book is as popular as it is the only person that that has any dimension at all in the miniseries is the prior because he he makes a choice for his own to, to get power and then realizes he made the wrong choice and i have to say philip is probably the best character in this book but uh, honestly i only think that is because ken follett was confused by the motivation of somebody who would be a monk mm -hmm. so he had to, he had he created a character who you know really does believe in god and believes in right. giving things over to god and that is an interesting motivation uh, and I think that is the only... But everyone else, it's like they're motivated by very basic things. Power and money. <laughs> this is... So I had listened to maybe two hours. This is very early on in the experience. And I went to get a filling done. <laughs> and they like it if you listen to something. Like, you know, I get anxiety at the dentist like everybody. So I brought my iPad and I was like, oh, listen to the book. Yeah. And they started drilling in my teeth. And I was like, oh, I can't hear the book over the drilling. And then there's like a pause in my head. And I was like, that's okay. I would rather, I would literally <laughs> rather hear my teeth being drilled than this description of these characters' motivations. Here's an example of the torture that is the audiobook, since there is no subtext. It's like, Jack had an idea. Maybe someone should burn the church. Not anybody maybe it would be tom builder and i'm like come on jack it's gonna be you go get, get a match walk over to the thing and burn it down but since there's absolutely no subtext there's nothing to think about and there's a huge amount of you know time spent like people having ideas that are not ideas they're just thinking boring things right. and in that manner the audiobook was a terrible terribly frustrating like i knew what was going to happen to everyone at least five minutes before it happened i would i would like to um read to everyone a a um text i received from julia pistel at <laughs> 7 57 a.m on the day of august on. 18th 2012 uh greg mm -hmm. who's julia's boyfriend Greg only made it through 30 minutes of Pillars of the Earth before snapping, I don't care about buttresses. <laughs> Greg's a very patient man. A very patient man. 30 minutes would be more than I would have taken. To say something, you know, I, I, I mean, it's kind of redundant having Ryder and, on, and I both on here because I totally agree with everything you're saying. But, like, I do care about buttresses. I'm interested <laughs> yes. in our history. I like big buttresses and I cannot, <laughs> I cannot lie. lie. <laughs> but one of the things that really annoyed me is, like, it was so unbelievable how the five good characters were all fucking geniuses. Yeah. Eliana yeah. invents prorating. <laughs> Sally invents round windows. <laughs> Jack is the only person in the universe who understands how that weeping statue works and right. just knows by looking at it. Like, they're literally all inventing things, but it's only them. There's no... It's such a small view of 
such an interesting world that I'm pissed off that people think that they're getting a true historical rep- representation of this time period. So let me ask you guys a question. Um, now, there are there's there's a couple pivotal things that happen in this book um, and in this miniseries, I guess, because that's what I saw, that I want to make sure we're in the book. Chief among them, there is a scene where Ellen, who is Tom Builder's Wiccan whore, comes in front of the uh, the um, Archbishop dude, played by Ian McShane, and he, he, you know, determines that she must die. And her response to this is that she stands on a table, uh, pisses on it, and then stabs him with a, a small knife. And then oh, she doesn't stab him in the book. She urinates everywhere. She and marches pees on out. the Bible. Uh, yeah. She doesn't pee on the Bible in uh, the the miniseries. I think she just pees on the table. At, it was at that point when my wife Wendy said, "I am not going to be in the house while you're watching this horrible miniseries anymore. You have to either watch it on your computer alone, or just read uh, the book because I can't take it." Well, so Todd, let me ask you: Doesn't does anything come to life in the performances? No, I mean, it's horrible. Because it, everybody's just just as wooden as they are. Just the as wooden. Tom Builder yeah. is horrible. Um, the, actually, Ian McShane, like I said, is, he's sort of fun to watch because Ian McShane. But the guy who plays the prior is so milk toast and blah, and without you know, he wears his interior tumult, you know. Pretty broadly, you can see it, and there's, there's just no dimension in it. The script is is horribly written. They have the same standing sets over and over again because they're you know the the thing takes well, place. Well, that was in the same my next place. question. How what is the the scale of the? Did did it feel like no. accurate in terms of capturing a sense of the medieval lifestyle or the the look of the costume? It reminded me a lot of going to medieval times. Um, oh, it didn't look like they spent a ton of money on it, even though it was a big miniseries, because it's, you know, they're, they're building that, the, the cathedral thing the entire time, so it's the same set over and over again yeah. that they're in. I, I just wanted to talk about the Bible peeing scene for a second. Um, I was psyched when that happened, but then they banish her, which was part of the reason that I was psyched. Right. And then she just comes back of no consequence. I feel like there are no right. consequences. For no, no like, consequence. Oh, my God. She's None. banished. This is the worst. And then literally she just comes back into town. Everyone knows who she is. And they're like, oh, banished lady. Here she is. Wah, wah. There's no there's no repercussions. Yeah. As much as this book pur- purports to be this epic with, like, through lines or thematic connections, it's actually uh, epic in its repetition. And it's just... <laughs> That's not the same thing as thematic repetition. Yeah, and a book is not an epic because it's long. No, no. and it's yeah. not thematic because the same thing happens to the parents that happens to the kids. That's not interesting. Like, what's interesting is if there are parallels between what happens to the parents of the kids or if characters change and grow, and none of these characters but change. none of the characters change. No. Tom Builder is a paragon of good from yes. the first moment you see him to the last moment he's on the screen. Right. The, the scar-faced woman... Uh, is horrible from the moment you see her scarred up face. What's uh, her name? It's William the, Hanley's the mother mom. of Hanley. Her name's Reagan, of course. Yes, yeah. No, her name's now, Reagan because King Lear. Because this book is King Lear. She has to be the evil one. So, Ugh. just to be clear, in the book, is she having an incestuous relationship no. with her son? No. In the movie, she is. There's oh, a. They, they wanted to throw incest in there just because all the raping wasn't enough. Like, what? Well, William the Rapist. I mean, I would. I know we already talked about... Yeah, he should just be called William Rapist. Tom Builder, William Rapist. 
the thing is, like, I want to talk about this rape just one more time because it really began to disturb me how, like, lovingly it was described. I don't know if you found that, right? Mm-hmm. I've yeah. heard other people say that. No, definitely. About other books. And I'm always like, well, you know, getting into the mind of the character, I'd have to read it to know. Uh, it was the initial rape that kicks off a lot of the action. Um, is so, I wrote down some, um, I wrote down some lines from it. Her red, oh, of course, it's always from his point of view, never from the victim. Her red lips were in a big O of surprise. Her body was slick from sweat from the struggle, but she shivered. Like, there's all these lines like this. And it's so disturbing. And at one point, I couldn't find it, and I'm killing myself that I didn't write it down. But at one point, she apologizes to him or for her. Oh, no, yes. It's when she finally gets together with the person that she's supposed to be with that she's like, I'm so sorry. I was raped. Yes. Will you still yes. be with me? And he's like, I guess. I Okay. Yes. No, 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 no. I found that incredibly disturbing because the scene where they do, you know, that, that, where they consummate their real love, uh, she apologizes for having been raped, but then, which actually, you know, I can give, like, I, I, I I think the time period, you know, that there's an idea that, you know, but then it's also like, she's like, do me harder once they start having sex. And you're like, what? No. Yeah. Yes. She's like she's like do me harder and you're like wait a minute wait don't make this like this it was in a no not in a like and yeah. not in a not in a kind of way that would be like oh she was psychologically so fucked up from her rape that she is only seeing love that because that would have been interesting in a whole nother yes. way is if you know Ken Follett I felt had the depth to write that kind of no it's like a really poorly written love scene yeah. that is completely insensitive to the fact that this character had been raped before it's like it's exploiting the new type of love scene as if that never happened and, and it's like wait that, a minute this person yes I totally agree with you thank you because what happens is not only has she been raped but she has literally just described her rape She's like, here's what happened. Okay. Here's yes. the person. Here's it. Will you still love me? And he's like, yeah. I'm so basically. He's like, I'm so turned on by this conversation. Let's do it. Ugh, and it right. is so. That well, is but, so, so here's the weird thing, though, is that there are so many, you know, sweeping romances, and not long ago, and they, they probably still exist, where people are raped, you know, and it, it's they come back. Remember General Hospital when Luke and Laura got together, Luke was her rapist first before they fell in love. And so it, I, I wonder if it's, you know, sort of from that time when people were writing these books, because didn't, when did he write this book? The nineties, the eighties? No, 80, 80, yeah, late eighties. So there's, there was all that stuff that was being written of a similar ilk, but also these huge, massive novels like Shogun and things like that, that, you're right. Writing. I forgot about Shogun. There's all this like really explicit rough sex right. going on. Yes, always what, written by what? a man, of course. Um, <laughs> right. But and, or even like the Thornbirds, you know, all these books that had really explicit sex in it, um, and were these sweeping novels, historical novels. So it was really of its time to have this stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, it doesn't mean it was good, but it was you know it was what people were buying is what people were reading. Um, but it, it's no less disturbing. So. 
here's the question, guys. Why the hell is this so popular? Why are we in the minority? Because mm. I have not had a single conversation with anybody besides you two. That's what's so amazing is my brother and I write together. We have very similar tastes when it comes to stories and books and characters, and that's why it like hurts my heart to have to <laughs> not like this book, so, which is why I avoided reading it, because I had a feeling I wouldn't like it. Something told me that this book was not as good <laughs> as everyone in my family was trying, you know, so I, you know, I hate that I don't like this book. I really wish see, that here, I could love this book. Here's the thing about Shiloh's great love of the book, is that he can reread it again and say that he still likes it, but I'm not convinced, because I know he's a smart reader, I'm not convinced that he doesn't have an emotional attachment to it because of that time in his life and yes. the epic road trip with your father. So yes. reading that book brings back that yellowed past, which is fine. But let's step away from Shiloh, because Ryder's question is still valid, and I my guess is that a big part of it is Aliena. Like, her story arc is, despite the mm. rape mm. and rape apology... When she was getting into the fleece fair, I was like, all right, girl, you right. go. Like, there yeah. was a brief okay. moment where she almost became a prostitute, and I was rolling my eyes. <laughs> but, you know, go. But she's go she's the exiled kid. princess. I mean, it's yeah. so typical. Yeah, I she's know. the exiled princess. It was, I mean, it's. And, like, nothing actually challenges the gender dynamics or like no. I mean it's yes, not I like know. like I mean because I've heard people give arguments about like the Hunger Games which I've mm-hmm. never read you know but like that character is like this sort of great tough girl role model for you know or the character of Arya in Game of Thrones is a great example of like just a badass exiled princess that goes against all the sort of exiled princess stereotypes and like in this book, Aliana never reaches that point. And you don't, I just want to say also, like, I love the Hunger Games and I love Game of Thrones, but you don't have to be a tomboy to be a feminist icon or hero. So mm. that's why when she was really, like, I mean, yes, she was badass the whole time. And yes, we all knew exactly how it was going to work out. But when she, she actually was poor, unlike, and had to bring herself out of it and she actually did now granted this is a very small part of the book so that's my guess the other thing is the historic aspect like there are so many history nerds guys Mm -hmm. there are a lot and if they feel like they're getting you know some sort of historical knowledge in a easy to read book they're psyched see the other Boleyn girl but it makes no sense to me that Oprah picked it for her book she did it was an Oprah book in 2007 oh my god and a lot of Americans mm-hmm. love it. And I'm not, like, I, I I have a hard time with that because Oprah usually picks pretty decent books. And, and not only decent books, but they, all, they always tend to have at mm-hmm. least thematic depth, which I find no thematic depth to this. I find this to be an entirely predictable mm-hmm. fairy tale story masquerading as historical depth. If anything, there's maybe you could pull some religious stuff out of it. You could say that that there's, you know, about the history of kings and relationship between kings and the church, but it just doesn't I don't think any of that really pays off because the characters are so transparent. Guys, I think the true horribleness of the book comes across in the writing. <laughs> I like I think that some people would hear what we're describing and be like, yeah. that sounds interesting. Like, I can put some connections together in my mind. And if we ended this podcast without me reading some of the quotes that infuriated me, I would freak out. So so this one is, um, I already told this one to Todd because the second it happened, I couldn't contain myself. Um, this is why the book is about 100 times longer than it used to be. <clears throat> this is one sentence. 
outlaws were outside of the law, as the name implied. <laughs> Come on. All right, here's another one. This demonstrates the clicheness. Either I'm crazy or this idea could actually work. That's what Monk oh, said, God. apparently. Um, <laughs> he is what he is. He's a cliched filled monk. One. He was secretly intrigued be, by the idea of doing it with a total stranger. <laughs> and finally, um, oh, someone on Goodreads pointed out that um, they, he uses the phrase eating knife to seem like historical a lot. And I Google, I searched it in Google Books and it is used nine times. That is way too many and wait also, you and i googled something yeah, together through that's the book right <laughs> so writer i don't know if you noticed this but listening to it i could not not hear it every single time the phrase anytime something exciting is about to happen his heart was in his mouth or her heart was oh. in her mouth so did you yeah. notice it yeah, um, yeah, yeah so i google searched it in the male version no let me start with the female her heart was in her mouth 12 times and <laughs> his heart was in his mouth 23 times oh my god oh my god every character has their heart in their mouth at their pivotal scene i'm telling you guys read this book and be like holy shit these people are eating themselves from the inside because <laughs> and it breaks the idea of the time period like i would even accept those cliches since they're from a character point of view from the last 40 years or something but there's no way that in 1100 somebody said the idea of doing it with a total stranger that is not right it's no. not happening and i could hear no. the guy reading the audiobook try to like make sense of it he was like <laughs> of doing it with a total stranger <laughs> not like doing it oh so terrible so terrible so I I've been I've been thinking about why people love the miniseries because people love the miniseries also I think people love anything on an epic scale they can get into it and, and keep watching it you know and that just becomes you know that becomes part of their day for eight weeks or something like even the Hatfields and McCoys I got really into Hatfields and McCoys but that was really well written that was good stuff Are we literary snobs is the question like is there a world in which you can enjoy this book without putting any pressure on it and just think of it as basically a romance novel or a historical romance novel and you know if Fabio were on the cover fine so why but you we, wouldn't you why wouldn't read we... a historical romance novel writer I like a lot of crappy books or genre books like i've read books that are you know for example i read the true blood books i know todd's wife wendy did too i read a lot of fantasy i've read a couple of historical novels but i never think it's okay for a genre to be its own excuse like if you're gonna write in that genre you better right. write the, be the best, best. fucking yeah. historical novel ever well now that we've thoroughly decimated this book audiobook and miniseries. <laughs> let's uh, well, let's open it up to our listeners. If any of you like this book <laughs> and can launch a defense of it, we would love to hear it. We will not hate you. We will not judge you. Well, Todd will. Todd I'll will judge, judge you. you. Yeah, I'll judge but, you. But um, yeah, I'm, I'm I'm curious. I'm curious about somebody who read this book as an adult who has something positive to say about it so For, leave know. comments on our facebook about it and or or tweet to us and let us know your thoughts and uh, we will engage you in conversation um but let us wash this stain from ourselves and never Amen. speak of it again <laughs> uh, oh.
a few days ago, I started feeling really bad by how much we had tainted Ryder with our hatred, and I wrote Ryder an email like, if you secretly liked it, it's okay. And Ryder wrote back like, what the hell? Did you like it? I'm like, no, 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 no. That's it for this episode of Literary Disco. Join us again in two weeks. Like us on Facebook, facebook.com slash literary disco, and follow us on Twitter, at literary disco. Thanks for joining us. It's all right.